0: I'm Will Hitchcock.
1: And I'm Siva Vadianathan.
0: And from the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute, this is Democracy in Danger.
1: As our listeners know, we have spent a lot of time on the show talking about the disturbing rise of far-right extremism, how it thrives on the dark web, and the many ways that xenophobic, ultra-nationalist militant groups form, find each other, and then ultimately threaten an inclusive, multi-ethnic democracy.
0: Yes, Siva, and of course, as you know, the explosion of social media in the last couple of of decades has played a huge role in that. Uh, the same algorithms that are enriching Facebook, they've also ratcheted up extremist discourse. The web has made it possible to organize in secret, to hide your identity, to interact anonymously, and of course, to spread disinformation, to radicalize people, uh, and contribute to alienation. In our politics.
1: Right, right. As I've written, uh, there's nothing better than Facebook for motivation, uh, but perhaps nothing worse for deliberation. And we live in a society so hyper motivated in both good and bad ways.
0: Right. Well, today we have a guest with us whose
1: recent work adds a kind
0: of surprising twist into the story of political mobilization in the internet age.
1: Emily Van Doon is a scholar of communication at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She has a new book out called Democracy Lives in Darkness, How and Why People Keep Their Politics a Secret. Emily, welcome to Democracy in Danger.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Cool. So Emily, uh, this book offers a very granular analysis of a group of women in a rural county in Texas, right? So it's ethnography. And I love this universe in a grain of sand approach. These these women, as you wrote, organized initially in 2017, after Donald Trump's inauguration, so sort of like a post-election political therapy group, which, by the way, is kind of what our podcast is as well. Uh, But, you know, little by little, they began getting more involved in local politics. So you describe a meeting ahead of the 2018 primaries in Texas, Uh, And at that meeting, some of the members of the group tried to organize a calling party, like a phone banking party or campaign. They wanted to call senior citizens and let them know how they can vote by mail. But this pretty simple action turned out to be really fraught. Can you tell us what happened?
2: Yeah, so this was back in March of 2018. Um, So this is kind of right in the middle of primary season for the midterms. Um, I am attending this meeting, right? I've been attending many meetings to this point for close to about a year. Um, So I'm sitting around a table. They ask people to um, participate in this phone banking campaign. And they ask some of the women, hey, you know, would you be willing to make some of these phone calls to people in the county who are over 65, could vote by mail? Um, And I here, two women turn to each other. They're next to me, and they say, "Well, I I can't do that because you know my husband's at home and he could overhear what I'm saying on the phone." Mm. Um, and a bunch of the women around her kind of nod sympathetically. Another one's like, "Yeah, me too." Um, and this kind of raises this concern that's really at the heart of the book and something that kind of paints a really nice picture, um, which is that, you know, the mode of communication really matters, right? Like this is a phone call should be super easy. They should feel comfortable doing it. But if you're doing that at home with someone who disagrees with you and you're trying to keep your politics a secret from that person or you're trying to not step on their toes, then a phone call is actually not a great mode for you to participate. Um, And the second thing that was really important to this was that, you know, it was so important for this group to use other means um, to get people to participate. And one of those means was Facebook and email and digital communication that allowed them to have more control Mm. over what they're saying and who they're saying it around um, and who can see it.
0: Well, Emily, let me ask you to kind of zoom out a moment and and paint a picture of the group that you wrote about in your book. Uh, It's uh, some 130 women. But tell us a little bit about the makeup of this group. And you've given it the name in your book, a community women's group, CWG. But that's a, 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 a pseudonym, right? Because you didn't want really to give too much detail about who they are, because even now they still feel vulnerable for their political organizing. What is significant about the fact that they had to keep their politics a secret?
2: yeah so it's a group of I would say pretty average Democrats or progressives um, it's a mixture of some independents and some kind of more reticent or disaffected Republicans um, as you said it it's in a rural area in Texas and if anyone has been to rural Texas, it's a unique place. Um, it's very different than the you know like huge booming cities of Texas. Um, they're small towns, it's farmland, it's ranch land it's a it's a very different geographic Um, community. Uh, It's mostly, you know, white women. Um, There were a few people of color um, that would come to meetings, but by and large, it was Middle-class white women, uh, and most of them over the age of 60. The median age was about 62, so uh, it's a very niche group of people. Um, I mean, like I always say, tell this story, but like I would come to some of these meetings, and they felt like my grandparents. Like they would try and send me home with baked goods, or be like, "Hey, uh, why don't you take this extra stuff back to your apartment? You're probably not getting a ton of food as a graduate student." I mean, it was just like I was being mothered by some yeah. of these women because that's that's the age group that I was working. Well,
1: hey, that's the best kind of scholarly work, right? Absolutely. Goods, right? So, so that that brings up another question, right? The group actually sounds pretty ideologically diverse, even if they weren't ethnically diverse or diverse in terms of age range. So, what were their arguments about their agenda?
2: Yeah, I think that was one of the things that quickly became an issue for them. I mean, this is a two-party system in the United States. They kind of had to decide, right? Like, if you're going to move forward and and take political action, as you get closer to an election where you're forced to choose, like, which which party are you going to choose? And I think that they uh, ultimately came to the decision, we've got to back the Democrats, but that mm. cost them some of their membership, right? Because some of those people didn't want to do that. Um, and I think that that became... Um, kind of a broader issue. But that was a huge concern, was do we be nonpartisan or do we have to take an affiliation? Um, And I think the the ultimate uh, impending election forced them to choose a side, and they had to go with the Democrats. Um, And I think, you know, there's some research to say that our national politics have started to increasingly align with our local politics, right? That, like, we have uh, people who are now voting locally like they would nationally, and that has kind of changed how parties are distributed at the local level. But it also really creates systems uh, in places in particular, like rural Texas, other rural areas uh, of other states, where you have a very dominant party, um, both locally and nationally in that area, because people are aligning those two levels. Um, And then you have one little sad party that's just trying to hang on and desperately remain relevant or have a presence at all in the county. Um, And so that has, has certainly been a challenge for this group in particular, is that their Democratic Party locally, they had very few people left even willing to run as a Democrat in the area. It had totally flipped since the 90s. Mm. Um, and now they are barely hanging on by a thread. It's the same few people who run the party. Uh, nobody wants to be public as a Democrat. Nobody wants to put a Democratic yard sign out. They can't get people to run. It's, it's really kind of decaying in their community, even though the state-level party, Democratic Party in Texas is actually growing as the cities become bigger and as they're engaging some of these previously non-voters in those areas.
0: Well, Emily, let me circle back to a, a question that's really at the heart of your book, which is, you know, why does this political organizing have to be done in secret? You know, what is it that these women genuinely are afraid of? And it's easy for me to say they shouldn't be afraid of X, Y, and Z. But in your book, you make it clear that they have really significant anxieties about being perceived as liberal, being perceived as progressive, being perceived as politically active, and as having different views from their husbands and so forth. I mean, how important is fear to this story?
2: Yeah, I mean, so fear is key here. Like, There was social fear. People did uh, in this group worry about being isolated from their community, um, about having friendships. And uh, one woman was legitimately kicked out of her knitting club for expressing dissenting beliefs to what they were saying around Trump. Uh, If you're voting in a primary in Texas, you declare as when you go to vote um, what party you're voting in and you if you're in a rural area where it's a small town, like you know the people at the table who you're declaring that to. So that kind of removes the anonymity and the sanctity of the anonymity we associate with voting in this country. But there were kind of some more surprising elements of this work that I didn't expect and that kind of challenge what we previously think about when we think about people being afraid of expressing their beliefs. You know, economic fear. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these women were worried they would lose patronage or business. So they're real estate agents and they were worried they would get Trouble um, with clients, or they would have clients not come to them because they knew their politics. Um, one owned a local business and was worried, literally, she said that, that people would take after her business if they knew what she believed. Um, and that's kind of a new thing, right? She's not a wild extremist. She's a pretty average Democrat in her local town with like long standing connections and friendships there. Um, and for her to feel like her business was at stake was a kind of an interesting thing. And the last uh, kind of fear that I talk about in the book uh, is physical fear. So some of these women were actually afraid of being like physically retaliated against for expressing their beliefs. So, you know, one woman I talk about, Linda, um, she was afraid of putting a yard sign in her front yard because she had done that in the past and had a couple of her animals shot at. So, you know, there was this legitimate concern of having physical retaliation or physical violence against them for making their their politics public
1: and and they're the fundamentally undemocratic or anti-democratic aspects of the current state of American politics right and and this isn't just happening in rural Texas we've seen accounts of this happening all over the country so I I have spent a lot of time in rural Texas I was a reporter for a few Texas newspapers back in the 20th century. So it's a different state, at least in terms of political affiliation. In those days, top to bottom, all the local elected officials were Democrats, even in the most conservative counties that I remember. What's it like now when when they decide to back the Democrats? like What kind of difference did these women make when they went about their work? Did they improve the health of democracy over the long term? Is there a possibility for improving the health of democracy over the long term? And did they make a difference in who won elections?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think this is kind of a broad question of, you know, political participation, political expression, political engagement. Like, what is the impact of this? There's, of course, not a great way of answering this definitively. But I think I can kind of point to some of the ways that this group in particular and in particular how secrecy helped the women kind of what they would say come out as Democrats. Um, so, you know, they talk about, I mean, I, I constantly heard this. people in the group refer to, I'm coming out as a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of parallels to how much this is an identity. I mean, we can think about coming out, um, coming from the gay liberation movement and the process of unveiling one's, you know, sexual identity. That is very much like rooted in oppression. Um, and I think Obviously, this isn't to the, ex- the same extent that many people have experienced, particularly in those communities. But, you know, the women in this group did have that process of having to unveil part of themselves to people uh, that they knew. And what that looked like for some of these people was, you know, lots of these women actually joining and helping to run the party. Um, and that looked like them updating the voter records, going door to door. I mean, the Democratic Party in Texas has historically really abandoned some of these areas. They had been like, oh, well, they're unviable. They're not going to win um, a bunch of votes in that area. So we're not going to put even a bit of time into the- maintaining those records or even reaching out to people in those areas. And so this group has really like put some energy into the local party and helping to kind of update those records and reach out to people who haven't been reached out to in twenty. 20- years. Um, So I think that is kind of one of the areas that I I can definitely point to them making a difference. They've also you know, kind of encouraged some of these women to run for office. So one of them ran for city council. Um, She told me that she was like, I could not deal with this guy uh, talking about these two other women on city council. And she said he would like criticize them and belittle them. And she was like, had enough of it. After joining the group, she like, Absolutely. It was like, I'm running and ran and won a spot on city council and replaced him. So that's small. Right. But like that is a a person who wasn't willing to even express their beliefs to anybody who is now running for office. And I think that that kind of points to some of the incubatory things happening from this group.
0: Mm. That's a great story of moving from the, the darkness into the light. You can't run for city council without being a public figure. But I want to ask you just a pointed question because I can imagine our listeners throwing their earphones down on the ground and saying, I, 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 I don't care about these ladies. Uh, they, to me, they are uh, hiding From reality. Look, uh, grow up, uh, take a risk. The essence of democracy is to have the courage of your convictions and to speak publicly and at least acknowledge that you have differences. Because if we can't acknowledge we have differences, our democracy is gone, our politics is gone. Is one one interpretation of your research and of your book that basically if elderly white ladies in Texas can't express their political views even within their family or in, in public, that basically our democracy has already so corroded and so polarized that there really is no room for people to disagree anymore. And if that's the case, it's too late.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that that is kind of the Prognosis here, right? Like this is a group of women who are very privileged in many, many ways, who face very little persecution for any other part of their identity. Um, I mean, I talk a little bit about it in the book that you know they're women and they feel of uh, you know a particular age that kind of feel like men take over a lot, and they. I mean, it's part of the reason why they are an all-female group, but you know, in reality, they really they don't have a ton of opposition against them, minus this being outnumbered in their community. So yeah, there is this kind of like horrible moment where we're like, if this is the group that's feeling like they need to hide, what about people who have so many other marginal identities stacked up, right? Like this is not a group who's experiencing an extreme amount of uh, persecution in any other way. So I think, yes, there is kind of this takeaway here, which is that this is where we are. This is a this is a dark place if this is the group that feels like they need to hide. Right. And I think, you know, that's that's kind of the harsh reality that this points to and I kind of wanted to flip it a little bit on its head, which is that, you know, yes, this is sad. The fact that these, you know, are the people who feel like they need to hide tells us how far we've gone with how turned against each other we are. But it's also kind of optimistic, and at least maybe that's my pitch here: is that this tells us that people can keep going. That like even when they do face these conditions, they they these women could have given up, right? Like they could have just been like, "Well, that sucks. I'm not really going to participate in my community. I, I have all these reasons to not do it." But instead, they're like, "I think I will continue. I think I'm going to try. I think I'm going to keep." Doing something because that's what my country calls me to do. Um, And I talk about this in the book as this kind of like beautiful picture, but they start their meetings every time with the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, And they have this like true patriotism, which is really, really compelling. Um, that kind of points to this is not an anti-democratic thing. Like we like to think about secrecy as this horrible, like, oh, people shrouded in in um, disinformation and spreading rumors and getting together and causing anti-democratic outcomes. I mean, think insurrection, think all the alt-right uh, material you can find on the Internet. This is a group of people who come together, say the Pledge of Allegiance and really try and put their values to work. Um, and they could have given up. So I feel feel like the kind of takeaway of this is that democracy does live in darkness. It also lives through it. Like we're going to make it through if we can just keep investing in people willing to do the work.
1: Well, Emily Van Doon, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Emily Van Dun is an assistant professor of communications at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. She's the author of the new book, Democracy Lives in
1: Darkness. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. We'll be right back after this message from our friends. What
0: I learned through my journey is that I was not as good as I thought I was, and they were not as evil as I thought they were.
2: Join our nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives on Village Squarecast for civil discussions about politics, religion, and race, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. In high conflict, any intuitive, common sense thing you do to try to fix it will probably make it worse. Find us on Village Squarecast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Siva, at the end of last year, I had a casual conversation with my graduate seminar of about seven or eight students. They were heading home for you know, family reunions, and we were talking about politics and other topics. And every single one of them said they can't talk about politics at home. Mm-hmm. So this is a group of University of Virginia students. They're well-educated. They come from families that are quite diverse, but clearly share the idea that education is a good thing, they still felt they couldn't really speak openly and publicly with their closest family members about mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I'm wondering is, has Emily Van Dune put her thumb on really what is the central crisis of our time, which is that democracy requires people to
1: talk and to argue. And if we can't do that, we really don't have a democracy. So look, it doesn't break my heart, That students who are exploring their political identities at different stages of life are reticent to engage in uncomfortable conversations with people around them or in their lives. You know, politics can be fraught and nasty, especially at the personal level. But let's remember what Emily Van Doon is describing that is not part of the Thanksgiving table problem. She's describing the potential of violence the exercise of power she's describing a situation where women in rural texas are concerned for the peace and safety of their of their homes right they are in some cases afraid of the men in their house in many cases they're afraid of people in their community exacting threats exacting actual violence so let's keep power in mind as we discuss who gets chilled and why chilling effects are a fascinating subject i've been thinking a lot about them we you know we hear about this alleged cancel culture problem in the world and it's one that i am pretty convinced is a moral panic uh but it often invokes the notion of a chilling effect and a chilling effect unfortunately is not something one can document because it's the absence of something or it's the Uh, Assumed absence of something an expression and let's also remember not all expression in all contexts is helpful or beneficial or healthy.
0: One of the things that we've talked about on this show a lot is the organization of the alt-right done underground and in secrecy, at least it had been, uh, really up until 2016. We've seen all kinds of evidence from scholars like Kathleen Ballou and others who've come on our program talking about the way over the past 30 years, uh, militia groups and white power groups and nationalist groups and and Christian uh, ethno-radicals have been quietly and, in many cases, secretly organizing. But the reason that they've kept a lot of that organization secret is not necessarily out of fear of retribution, but it's because they have a, a, a sense that their views are either so sharply out of the mainstream or are, in fact, illegal mm-hmm. that they've had to keep their organizing secret. So while I do think there is an equivalence here about this sense on both the left and the right that somehow their politics are going to make them vulnerable, Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to recognize that there's something really quite different about the group that Emily Van Doon's writing about and a group of, you know, white nationalists in upstate New York that are secretly stockpiling weapons. These are not the same things.
1: So oh, I wish the alt-right would be more secret, more quiet, more demure. Instead, they rampaged through our town in 2017. They invaded our capital in 2021, they have uh, opened fire on synagogues and on Walmarts and continue to uh, make themselves quite publicly known and their opinions quite well articulated. Uh, And uh, we clearly are living in a situation where uh, if you have a gun, you do not fear speaking. If you don't have a gun, it's a little bit different.
0: That's all we have this week. We'll be back soon with legal scholar Christopher Sprigman. He'll walk us through all the ways that the federal court system threatens the very democracy it was intended to protect.
1: Brutus, one of the greatest anti-federalists, basically said, you know, the court's not responsible to anyone, and men in that position soon feel that they're not responsible to heaven itself. You know, he said they will mold the government into any shape they please. In the meantime, stay in touch. Share your thoughts with us on Twitter. Our handle is at DD Podcast. That's at DIND Podcast. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, and please drop us some stars. Five if you can afford it. And if you
0: can't get enough of the show, visit our webpage, dindanger.org. Learn more about
1: our guests and find more background material on every episode. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armangal with help from Rebecca Berry. Ellie Bashkow is our engineer. Our interns are Ava Kretzinger-Walters, Ellis Nolan, and B Webster. Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences.
0: The show is a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy. We're distributed by the
1: Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. Until next time.